0: Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host Michael Verratti and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. On today's episode I'm excited to be joined by the author of the highly anticipated Surrender Your Sons, a forthcoming YA novel about a gay teen who is kidnapped and taken to a conversion therapy camp on a forgotten island and his perilous adventure to uncover the camp's dark secrets. In addition to being an award-nominated and celebrated author, he's also a known authority in the Buffy the Vampire Slayer fandom Having appeared as a frequent guest and co host on the popular podcast SlayerFest98. Please welcome to the show author extraordinaire and Sunnydale's newest mayor, Adam Sass.
1: Hi, how are you? I'm good. How about yourself? I'm good. I'm so excited to finally be on Doug for Phillip, longtime listener.
0: Well, I you know we've been trying to, to coordinate having you on, and then I, I took a long nap, so I'm glad that I, you're able to join us in this new iteration.
1: I know. I'm, I'm, I know I'm on this great little renegade season. It's fantastic.
0: Well, and you know, what, what are queer people better at than, than going against the grain and, and, and doing things a little renegade? So this kind of feels, this feels right.
1: This is absolutely right. And this is something where, you know, as soon as you kind of came to me and you were like, hey, this is what I'm thinking. I was like, OK, this is A, it's like everything everybody needs right now is a little horror escape um, and also a little horror acknowledgment. Um, because I think what we're feeling right now is a lot of that sort of awful, I've got a bad feeling about this that a lot of horror characters deal with. So um, yeah, I think this is the absolute appropriate time to come back from the dead.
0: Well, thank you, and I agree. And with that in mind, why don't we start things off the same way I start every show with the same first question I ask every guest, and it's simply this. Why horror? And you can interpret that however you want. What does horror mean to you? Why do you think audiences are drawn to the genre? But why horror?
1: Um, Horror, I mean, obviously means a lot to a lot of different people. So I think it's always a great question for the show. Um, I speak about this. It's really going to be more like my point of view. Um, And anybody who follows me on Twitter kind of knows... I'll talk I'll talk in the in the in the way where I'm just like, everybody thinks this, but obviously it's is just my opinion, but i'll'll usually <laughs> frame it like that. So take it with a grain of salt if this is not your lived experience. Um, but uh, horror for me is, um, you know, the way I deal with like shitty feelings and dark thoughts and trauma is to. Um, I, I mean I'm just I acknowledge it um, and I think for me horror is this like great acknowledgement of like you're fucked I don't know if I can swear on this podcast but like um, yeah. like it, it's the it's the you're fucked everybody you love is fucked this if you were fucked from the beginning um, so I think like th- that tends to be a little bit more of a negative negative. and I, think, I know most horror at least most of the horror that I see usually even if there's a happy ending there's some like little damn thing at the end it's like oh it's not over like so and i think that's just i i just like an acknowledgement of like just acknowledge how i'm feeling and how i'm feeling is like super freaked out super full of dread and this is going exactly where i feared it was going to go um so it's it's very um it's i find it very affirming in that way so that you know when the when the movie is done anything else uh positive in real life is 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 a bonus
0: so uh, for you a lot of it has to do with catharsis in a way
1: yeah it's just i mean again like i'm uh, i tend to be a worrier and i tend to be um like a worst case scenario person like i'll gain all you know, like you know like most people i just i try to game it out in my head and like go through the different versions in which it can go bad and horror is all about that i mean it's all just like uh, well, this goes bad for this person and, ooh, they could have made it if they do, oh, but no, they didn't, you know, like, so it's, it's a way of, like, almost, like, visualizing all the different, like, worst case scenarios, you know, for me, at least the horror that, uh, that I see, and I feel pretty, um, proficient in what I've seen.
0: Well, so... Let's talk about what you've seen and 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 take it back to the beginning. Was this a genre that you were always drawn to? Um what what are your origins in in the world of creating and in genre?
1: Yeah. Um so I I was into horror pretty early. Um I would say as early as I can remember. I mean, I mean if if we're counting like, you know, spooky stuff that maybe isn't like the full R-rated stuff that, you know, you can see now. Um, but, you know, that was always sort of like, you know, Halloween was a thing and then like all the, you know, kind of spooky Halloween theme stuff and, and all that. But then I think the real, the first chance I got like into, you know, the hard stuff was regular TV. I mean, my parents were not very like, you can't watch. they were, they were pretty permissive when it came to movies and shows. There really wasn't, um, and this wasn't to say they were like, you know, just, you know, absent or whatever, and, like, didn't care. Uh,
0: <laughs>
1: it was just more, I I, I was a very much. I hope you're sitting down, it was a very mature, serious child. So, like, I, if I just was like, this is what I'm watching, they kind of trusted me not to, like, be a lunatic. Um, and get super corrupted but whatever I was watching I don't even think they believed in that sort of like horror corrupts kids things so yeah I think like they were just happy that I was especially if it was from a cinematic point of view because I always sort of like when I watched movies I would always come at it even at like 10 or 11 with this film appreciation point of view so I mean they really I think respected that I was coming at it from a very analytical point of view and not just I'm watching stuff and then I'm like going out doing the things
0: Well, and you you raised an interesting point that that stuck out to me, and and this was something I was going to talk to you a little bit later when we we talked more about your writing, but I think this is a good segue, because you mentioned that you were attracted to the spooky things before necessarily going towards the the hard R content or whatever, you know, that, that, that would be mainline horror. And we talk a lot in genre about this notion of Gateway horror, like things like return to Oz or you know goosebumps that sort of like usher kids into an understanding and an appreciation of the genre. But you work in a in a yA young adult space. and I think that gateway horror is sometimes like in a way, it's sort of like a kid's glove term. I guess my question would be, is horror important in in a yA space and and, and, and why?
1: one million billion trillion percent it's important um this is something that I I talk about a lot and will, as closer I get to my book's release we'll talk about even more probably as often as I can um you know I'm I'm a, I'm, I'm a big supporter in of like nice I mean especially queer YA, like I, there's a big push pull right now of like queer kids have gone through enough they should just be provided with like the happy sunny story not these like trauma narratives that you know i think you know older gays grew up with and that sort of thing um which i see a point to but again it's i i'm never a subscriber to an all or nothing point of view never i don't care what it is um so i think there's like there is a big discussion about like well they should only have these like sunny happy narratives where there's no real conflict around their identity that sort of thing and yes that is always important and that should always be available and frankly it always will be available it is the more consumed product right now in that space um however i am a huge advocate for there still does need to be um an acknowledgement i'm just going to keep going back to that word acknowledgement of that um, this trauma still exists for queer and, and, and non-queer kids, you know, and, and anybody who would be reading these books, um, because that's never going to be eradicated. You're still going to be dealing with, I mean, I mean, that's something we're seeing with Gen Z right now, is just, like, they're really all about um, cutting through the bullshit and, and just, I mean, I, I mean, a lot of young generations usually are during that time, but, like, definitely. I mean, this generation um, of high schoolers are going are no stranger to active shooter drills. They have been dealing with that almost their entire, um, you know, pubescent life. I mean, that is something where it's like that is a a horrific thing to. I mean, it it becomes commonplace, but it's a it's a highly horrific thing to have to just incorporate into your personality and you know. And there's such a need to acknowledge. to break through the normalification that that has happened. Um, and not just that, but other things. I mean, we're facing um, with climate change, we're facing a lot of existential dread. Um, and a lot of that generation is like, well, you know, that there's a lot of anger and, you know, frustration and hostility around that and, and a great desire to see change. And so I think horror and and really more what I'm currently providing in Surrender Your Sons to that space is acknowledgement It's just a, Yes, this is horrible, and these horrible things are happening. And here's how, even throughout this, here's how you can survive and thrive in that space, in that environment. You don't have to pretend it's not happening in order to get through it. And they know that because they are getting through it, um, and they are surviving. So I think having that mirror is very important for for kids who, because I mean, because and and there's no hive mind. There's not. Um, You know some would rather just like what they they react to stress differently they would they would rather just be like you know what i am dealing with this enough in my own life i'd rather just kind of read something or watch something where i kind of go to another place where everything's okay and that's great um and then there's some people who, you know, probably, the, I, I always say I wrote Surrender Your Sons for the weird kids and the darker kids, the gothy kids, the um, the kids who maybe find um, earnestness to be, uh, you know, a little, not false, but maybe a little embarrassing is the word I can say. Like, I think I just, this is how I was when I was a kid. I found things right. that were very earnest and very hugging and learning um, to be kind of embarrassing I don't know I mean that's I'm not Gen X but that was sort of a little bit of Gen X rubbing off on me you know as a Seinfeld watcher that was like Seinfeld's big rule every episode that there was no hugging and no learning um and so (laughs) that was uh and you know I say just all the things that I you know I watched I mean I watched Buffy um which was all about um adults were blind to all this horrific stuff happening to them they had to just kind of deal with it and joke their way through it. Um, and, and even X-Files, which is a little less snarky, but was a little more um, about, yeah, there's shit going on. And and there's a lot of people who not just aren't willing to talk about it, but are will actively try to suppress that and will resist you finding out what's going on about it. So. Um, for me, that's horror, which is just like, it's peeling back the curtain. What is going on? What is actually back out there? Um, it's it's sort of feeding your anxiety a little bit. Um, you know, I think it's every time you sort of give into that doom scenario. I mean, that's really what horror is. And that's what Surrender Your Sons does is just, it's like, hey, this is every anxiety. Um, a kid who maybe, even though um, it gets better is out there. And even though there's, you know, things like you know, Glee streaming and, and Love, Simon, and there's all sorts of great positive stuff, there is still shitty thought out there. There is danger out there, and these kids know that. And I think having at least one option that is like, hey, things are great, but um, here's something else going on behind the curtain, and here's how you survive through that.
0: I think it's interesting because you said, you, you talked about why this is important in a general... Sp- space but you also talked about why this is important to you and the idea that uh you know as as a young adult and and young person you were kind of pushed away or not interested in things that were overly earnest because it didn't feel like it reflected the world you lived in and you go towards something like buffy or or some of this darker content and I, i i think what's interesting about buffy and we don't talk about it enough when we discuss the show is yeah, there's snark and yes, there's sort of teenage nihilism, but kind of the the coolest aspect of the show is, is this like message of finding altruism in the nihilism. And, and that's, that's sort of like by, by kind of speaking to the goth kids that are like, Hey, we know it's shitty, or uh, you know the punk kids, or the queer kids, or the people who feel outside of of the norm, whatever that means, in, in in kind of presenting something that aligns with their worldview, but also buried in there is the message like you can fight to make it a better, more selfless world too.
1: Yeah, I completely agree because because the the, the the nihilist kids, the the goth kids, the weird kids, the you know the kids who you know think this way and 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 perceive the world this way. They don't like this shit any more than the sweetheart kids. They're not like they're not like super into the bad stuff happening. They're just like they're like this is how I see things and this is how I am responding to the trauma of being. I mean, that's a very Buffy thing. I think that's like the end of season six. Just like the hardest thing in this world is to live in it, and I think that's a very goth POV. um, Is just. yeah, this is how I choose to perceive the world. I choose to perceive it in this way because that's my response to the trauma of living in this world.
0: So, we've we've talked a lot about how this this informed Surrender Your Sons. Uh, would you like to speak a little bit about uh, that that book? And I, I know it's coming soon, so like maybe you could set up a little bit for for listeners who will be interested in checking it out when it when it is released.
1: Sure. Yeah. So Surrender Your Sons comes out September fifth. 15- uh and it's uh as you said at the beginning of the show um it's about uh, a gay teen he's 17 years old his name is Connor he's from uh kind of a religious uh home he's uh his mom is a single mom and they're in the middle of uh sort of a farm town in Illinois and it's a town that's kind of in the grip of um a lot of religious thought but also just very conservative secular thought just in general it's it's kind of a Trumpy town it's a little bit of a it's got that "fuck you energy of, um, a lot of Trump world. Um, and so this is a kid who is, who has found a way to basically survive among the rocks there. Uh, and he's got a boyfriend and this boyfriend, um, is at a neighboring town? And this boyfriend is, comes from a very warm, loving, accepting family. Um, and so a lot of Connor's, Trouble stems from his boyfriend wants to put them on Instagram, and to keep being like, "Well, please don't." And you know, and there's and there's all this kind of push pull of um, uh, a kid who is more out and a kid who is out. Connor is still out, but um, he's dealing with a lot more stuff that makes him uncomfortable. He has a lot more hangups. He has a lot more circumstances in his life to deal with. And so, when we open on the book, uh, Connor is in already in crisis. His mom has taken his phone away from him uh as a means to she believes to uh separate him from friends' internet uh his boyfriend um anything to do to really basically isolate him and hopefully that will work um uh and then when we open in the in the in in this uh Connor doesn't really know what to do he feels very very solo um as a lot of us sort of start out on our queer journey uh and then as you know as the back of the book will describe connor is uh, taken in the middle of the night at mother's request to this uh, remote island uh, in uh, near Costa Rica, it's very Jurassic Park. Um, so <laughs> it is just uh, taken out of bed and taken down to Costa Rica. So it's it's it's, it's a thing where there is this um, unreality to it uh, that really feeds into a lot of the tumult that Connor feels moment by moment, which is just like okay, now I'm here now this person is doing this thing to me. So he's taken to this camp uh, called Nightlight and it's uh, in the middle of the ocean they are they are quite isolated. Uh, and this is a camp that is a conversion therapy center that has basically operated outside of the grid for many decades. and this is a place where when he when he first arrives there and he's in utter disbelief that these places even still have, you know he's even a casual reader of the news will see uh, that, um, yeah, they're passing laws that make these illegal and, um, and this camp doesn't really care about what's legal. And a lot of these laws are secular laws and if they're a religious organization, they can still operate just fine. Uh, so this camp uh, basically just says if, if parents wanted enough, we we're here. And, and that's where we find about a dozen other campers, uh, queer campers who are in the same situation. So what we're seeing here in Surrender Your Sons is Connor has to learn what all queer, queer kids have to learn, which is you think you're completely alone. And, um, and then not only do you have to deal with the trauma of um, living in an uh, anti-queer society, uh, the parts of it that are anti-queer, but also having to learn how to be part of a community, because the other campers in this uh, island all come from different given circumstances, different um, you know the, the 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 intersectionality of gender and race and uh, uh, gender identity. There's a, you're basically seeing a microcosm of the LGBTQ plus community within this camp, and uh, Connor very quickly has to realize as a as a white cis gay boy that. Um, Wow, I've had a bad, but also like I haven't had a divorce, and so he and the other campers have to learn how to work together to uncover what is secretly going on at this camp because it's not just uh, there is a mystery element to it. It is not just you know we got to we have to escape from this camp. There is uh, a crime that they have uh, covered up for, crime that happened about twenty years pri- uh, previously. And uh, this is their chance to not just escape, but if they can uncover what's going on there and uncover what exactly they did that they're covering up, they could close the camp down for good and have nobody ever go there again. And so uh, there is this, we really have to community build and work together to not just find out what's going on, but then get the evidence and get it the hell off this island. So a big part of what i love the most about this is that it is how i feel about the queer community as a as a whole um and all of the different ways and the challenges that um we have where we connect, where we disagree where some of us have to um, acknowledge that we're not the most in danger in the group uh, that there are other unique dangers that other people deal with, and how do you community build from that and get things done? Uh, and so, for that reason, it's a very trauma informed book. And a lot of the early reviews on Neck Alley um, have all brought up is that, like you know, it's a heavy read. Um, this is, you know, I was I was joking with a friend that I I didn't necessarily set out to make a little life for teens, but um, it's a heavy read.
0: Well, and can I can I ask you about that if you don't if you don't mind and it's not too personal? You spoke a lot about the macro issues that inspired you to approach a story like this, but I, I assume there's there are a lot of micro things that go into to telling a story like this too. Where it's 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 what 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 made you decide this was the story?
1: Well, um, it's a little it's a little complicated, but really what got me wanting to tell this story was um, so this this book I, I, I've been percolating on for, for a while I'd say about 10 years and, and about 10 years ago 2010 that was when It Gets Better videos were just beginning um, we were starting that project we were they started the project as a way to we were seeing an uptick in, in uh, uh, queer suicides um, and it was a very kind of hopeless time because we were trying to push through marriage equality so there was this whole dichotomy of things are improving but also like the, the suicides are going up and and what is you know like and it's just like it's 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 seeming like there's almost there seems to be something that's more traumatic happening here and there and there's there's a disconnect happening that, that maybe that that yes that marriage was not going to be this um panacea that solved all our problems that it was a big part of that but um, there was a danger in in saying that we were good and done and and beyond our problems um, so you know, there were you know there was um, there was somebody in my life there was a family friend who had a young son um, who is in like middle school high school who had had an attempt um, is okay now. Everything is seems to be very very good now. That was that was a while ago. But um, there was an attempt, and it was a very um, confusing, chaotic time uh, to figure out what exactly this kid needed um, and what exactly was causing this. And, and basically, how do you how do how does me as a I I was unpacking a lot, which was I was finding what a lot of us in. Who making it gets better videos at the time, we're finding which was there was a distrust to have me, a queer man, talk one on one privately with queer, uh, young queer person about something that affected both of us. Um, there was a great need at the time, I felt, to make sure that other voices were in the mix and adults were in the mix, and that there I was not able to speak to him on the level that I wished. Uh, because I believe there was a lot of uh, nervousness and, and 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 just in general how I feel about you know queer straight relations right now, um, even people who in the best are um, naturally suspicious of right. um, the uh, of there there are no older gay men younger gay men mentorships. It's very sexualized and sometimes for good reason, sometimes not, because there are, you know, stories that come in. We are obviously no stranger to to those stories. And so you don't see a lot of those mentorships, which I find very disheartening because I think that's something that um, I wish for very much in this community, that we could have those sort of um, parental, um, like Giles and Buffy, um, you know, (laughs) uh, relationships where there is a father figure Uh, Because parents, um, I'm sorry, you don't have all the information. You don't have the lived experience and know everything on how to talk to your queer child about about all of this. You just don't. They don't have all the tools. They have some tools. They don't have all of them. Um, And so I found that a very frustrating time in my life um, where I saw a child that was um, in crisis. And I felt... um, pressure to self-censor myself and to include all these other voices and, and and not mention certain things and be very careful not to break him quote quote um, there was a lot of treating him very fragilely, like he was fine China and I found that um, I found that repellent um, because I knew exa- I, I felt like I knew what he needed um, and there was so much policing of what I could even say to him. So that long story short, I brought a lot of this to I needed to guide a similar boy through what I wanted to say, what how I wanted what I wanted to, say to him, what I wanted to have happen for him. Um, and so I created Connor Major, who is who's a sophomore and a junior. Uh, In high school and um, under enormous strain um, and in maybe the worst time of his life so far and um, and I wanted to get him through that maze of how do you get him to the end how do you get him to the happy ending Um, and it was not through I and that's why I include this boyfriend character and these other forces who you know are are very much just like, yeah, everything's great for me, and this and that, and that that to show how maybe that wasn't the most effective measure to just show all these other gay people having such a great time that maybe right. that that was worsening it, that it's like, well, here's all these other Because, like, there's one thing a gay person really super loves is to see some other person having a great time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's the ticket. Um, so I was just like, I was like, well, maybe, maybe the most, maybe the, the thing that's, you know, not so great is to see, um, Hey, all these people are getting married. Not you though. You're alone. Um, like right. <laughs> not, not you though. You don't have a friend in the world to talk to about this, you know? And that, you know, there was, there was something that I was trying to work out there that I, I that I wasn't maybe a hundred percent sure what to, to say to help this person, but cause I'm, I wasn't a trained, you know psychologist i i I, you know there's a lot of this i didn't there were tools i didn't have but i feel like on just a um gay mentorship point of view i just felt there was a lot i wanted to say and still have never been able to say it um that's what i wanted to do with this book
0: and and you conceptualized conceptualized this this almost a decade ago so it's sort of been like a, a queer mission of yours and now now it's done how's that feel I mean, in terms of the book is done, I'm sure that there's much more you have to say, but th- that's that got to be quite a journey.
1: It's been a journey. It's been very, very you know, difficult. There's been, I mean, it was, uh, you know, I spent many years just writing it, um, getting that good. And then um, I was brand new to publishing. So I did not, um, I needed to base, because I, I was a film major. So I, I, you know, it's it's some people do the leap from, from film to, to books and back and forth. But there, I mean, screenplay is, you know, Joe enters, Jane exits. Um, and, you know, a book is more words than that. So um, it, there was a lot of just I needed to learn about the craft. There was a lot I needed to learn about the business, about what makes a good query letter, how you get an agent, why an agent is important. So it's a full business. And I think people who, you know, self-publish are great to do that, but I, I I do wish before people did that that they maybe educated themselves on all the different ways to go about getting a book out there and then determine what's best for them.
0: So, you mentioned that you were a film major, and I was when we were talking about your origins, we, we discussed mas- mostly your investment in horror uh, and, and your interest in film. So, film was your focus, but you were always interested in writing you just didn't do it till later or what was the trajectory there well i was a screenwriter
1: so um that was so i was just writing screenplays teleplays and uh so it was always writing it just was like what was the media that this was going to end up being uh so i mean i was a definitely like you know an avid reader um but It just seemed to be, um, you know, I was just such a rabid movie devourer and and TV show devourer that um, that seemed to be, I mean, that was just, that was how I learned storytelling. Um, And then later on, I learned a lot more about storytelling through reading it with an analytical mind. But I think first I came to film with an analytical mind. um, And with reading, I just kind of got swept away and didn't really think about the craft.
0: So you didn't really professionally do prose until your your adult life,
1: yeah, um until I turned thirty literally, and then um wrote this i mean this is I mean it's gone through so many different groups, but this is my first book
0: now, I did hear a story that uh you would write stories on Starbucks pastry bags,
1: yeah, <laughs> so um I was a barista for me like off and on for like six years like at barnes noble cafe starbucks but um yeah the pastry bags so like oh, there's a lot of downtime so I, i've worked at busy stores i've worked at slow stores the slow stores are um murder um so the way to pass the time is that you know there, there'd be so many pastry ba- i'm sure i wasted so many pastry bags and you know all that but um But, uh, yeah, um, they were great because on the front of a Starbucks pastry bag, um, it's, you know, they got the logos and shit, but the back is just blank. Um, So it was all this paper. And then I had, like, you have, like, like, 20 Sharpies on you as a barista. So you're just, like, sitting there. So I'm just, like, there with the Sharpies. And then I just started um, outlining um, something. I just was thinking about, like, oh, how would that go together? Um, And then eventually it did turn into, like, you know, it was a way to write while I was just blowing time at work.
0: Now, was it always in preparation for Surrender Your Sons, or was it other stuff? Did you, like, have, like, offshoot pastry bag stories?
1: Tons of pastry bag stories. In fact, I would love to... I mean, they're all gone, unfortunately, but I would love to recreate a few of those. Like, like, like I could see a later in my career sort of, like, little, um, you know, printed pastry bag uh, stories of just the stuff that never came to be. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, it was, no, there, there was, uh, it was screenplays because it was, so it was all coming from the screenplay world. And so this was when I was just being a barista, writing pilots and, and this and that and trying to get them sold. It's, yeah, it was, there was screenplays, there was pilots, which, you know, like, uh, and then I was in improv and sketch for a while. So then it was like sketches I would write on there. Um, but yeah, I, I would write basically everything. I feel like I've worked in every single medium whatsoever
0: well and and over the course of the conversation we've obviously talked about the draw to horror your interest in writing and how all of that informed this journey into making the book but you know you just kind of gave a hint that you had done uh some improv classes which of course means that you did some acting and i have it on good authority for horror fans of interest that you have an amityville connection would you like to tell us about that
1: i do so um yeah, when I left college, uh so I, I actually had a double major. I was a, f- I was a film writing and directing major and then a theater performance major. So I have two bachelor's degrees using neither. Um <laughs> in, in, in actively using neither, like going out of my way to use neither. Um but I would say like there has been a, a way to use uh both, but like one of my first professional acting jobs outside of college was um it was a it was like a Recreation, because I, I was not the I was not like the main character in it. So I was I was really just looped in from friend John, who is a much bigger horror fan even than I am. Um, and he got us kind of um, connected with this uh, friend of his who had created who was creating um, uh, the Amityville, like the real story behind it. And in fact, it, like it didn't include ghosts at all. It was it was basically. Um, the real life people who stayed there, who were perhaps, or yes, indeed, charlatans who were making this up for this this and that reason. There was actually like um, a really grisly murder behind the scenes of that. It was like a mob family murder, um, and it was it was basically supposed to be this like docudrama about uh, how like like what was the real story about the people who were actually killed in that house. Um, uh, and it's, it was one of those like truth is stranger than fiction things where it was like, there was no ghost, but also like, it's much more grisly than that. What happened? Uh, so there were, it was like a mix of like interviews with real people. And then, um, I don't even know what the name of the movie is. It, it, ch- it changed titles so many times. You probably could tell me the title. Um, but, uh, yeah, I was, I was one of the like mob family people. So it was me and, um, uh, cast member from the great two thousands queer horror show The Lair.
0: Yeah, the the person you shared your scenes with was David Moretti, who was the lead on The Lair. Uh, David's a friend of mine, so I was excited to see that you uh, you uh, had worked together. He is uh, now in Atlanta, starring in The Walking Dead. So
1: amazing <laughs> and great for him. Like honestly, David Moretti was like such a doll on that show. Like it was, it was, I mean, it was my only time ever working with him or meeting him. But um. He, Fantastic, and so, uh, yeah, definitely, he definitely brought a lot of that like horror, nerdy horror energy to this, which was just like, yeah, yeah, we're all just kind of excited to be here, but um, yeah, yeah, we were um, it was like us at a pool. Kind of so long ago. It was um, yeah, we were like playing pool and that sort of stuff. But it's weird, like this is the this Amityville docudrama is. I swear to God, it's going to survive me more than anything else I've ever done. Like, because this was something where. I mean, I come from a small Illinois town, just like my character Connor Major does, uh, and nothing I've ever done has ever. I mean, I was doing, you know, doing all this other stuff. Um, nothing I've ever done has reached as far as Amityville did. Like they were, they were, they were text. People were texting me through Facebook um, pictures, screen grabs of they were watching this movie uh this amityville movie on uh on just on tv like regular sunday and, and there i am popping up in this in this uh like mob hit scene
0: i love it it's uh, so what it is is called shattered hopes the true story of the amityville murders and it's a three part docu tv movie uh and, and i love that you kind of you were in the sort of um dramatic reenactments which for, for us kids growing up in the unsolved mysteries era those were always the most delicious parts of the unsolved mysteries
1: the part that got me i really was like i was like oh i want to do all i wanted to do so many more reenactments i wanted to be like guy who found sister stuffed into a box like just like people like there was like just anything that was like this crazy little like i could just react and kind of do my silent movie thing
0: so your your acting dream was to be the preeminent dramatic reenactment actor. Oh yeah,
1: oh yeah. I think it, yeah, d- dream small. <laughs> but um, like, I, again, I just it was one of those things where I was like, yeah, because I I very quickly was like, you know, of of my like creative ambitions, acting was like maybe the first out the door. So like, cause I say I never was like it was always like writing first, but like so I think like the more acting I did, like. If it was acting, it needed to just be fun. Um, it so and that this was obviously something where it was like it was Amityville it was like oh yeah we just do this like really crazy story, um, you you know just go to, go into the deserts of California with David Moretti and shoot this reenactment scene.
0: And Ed Asner was the narrator. How cool is that? Can't believe that.
1: <laughs> we did not know that at the time. It was just like two years later they were like yeah we got Ed Asner to do
0: amazing now even though you say that your acting career was short uh before we did the interview i was talking to you yesterday and uh you revealed that you also had a brief stint as a final girl in a uh, short film in 2006 called harvest
1: harvest um yeah john uh my friend john my aforementioned friend um this was his senior thesis film in our film school we film school together um Glorious man, uh, John Hybricht, and this was his uh, film Harvest. Uh, I'm not sure where you, I'm sure you can find it somewhere. I mean, he's made it very available, but um, yeah, I was the final girl. It was a it was like a slasher film set at Halloween. It was like very like like slasher in like there were like the the Halloween party was in a barn, so it was all very like um, you know scarecrows, hay bales everywhere. Everybody was <laughs> themed costumes. Uh and then the killer starts offing people one by one. And the killer was played by uh John and mine's mutual friend, uh, Guillermo Diaz, who everyone came to know and love through scandal and various various projects. But uh yeah, he was like the Jason of this movie and uh killed all my friends and the final girl and I got to kill him at the end.
0: <laughs> so as as a surviving final girl who is uh Who among the pantheon of great slashers do you feel you could take on next if you had to?
1: Oh, my God. Like, so who am I taking on next? Well, if I could choose to avoid certain ones, I would definitely avoid. um, I would avoid Freddy and Jason because, man, I just I I think Freddy for some reason. I know he's like the goofier one um, and, and the movies maybe are not as like you know I, I don't know I, I, I revisited them and, and they maybe don't hold up as well as I thought um to in to my eyes but like just growing up there was like I, I think dream stuff and like that stuff so would just really mess like messing with my reality that's like if you want to gaslight me I'm so gaslightable because like I'm just very gullible and I just like I I doubt my reality in a second so um any sort of thing getting me that way I'd be dead um but uh and then jason i just couldn't outrun him um but i think like i think michael myers i could
0: maybe take on all right perhaps
1: maybe chucky i think i could because i don't i don't have like a creepy doll thing like i don't care um not creeped by it
0: one of one of my favorite things in any child's play movie when they choose to do this and you know credit to don mancini he has had a few characters do this over the course of the seven films is when people just kick Chucky because you forget that he's just a a doll. So, like, sometimes people just, like, kick him and he flies across the room. And that, I don't care how many times that happens, I always crack up because that would be what I would do.
1: (laughs) It's exactly right. It's always a great laugh moment when they cut to the wide shot of just him sailing across the room. (laughs) It's great. No, I think, yeah. Why don't we just, how about I take on Chucky? I can take on Chucky next. Let's do that
0: love that. See, you didn't know we were going to go there, did you? Um, Now, one of the things, listeners, uh, Adam and I have been talking about doing an episode together for a very long time, and it was spurned on almost a year ago by a conversation that we had about a particular horror classic and its much maligned sequel and how uh, we share uh, kind of a similar viewpoint of it and have been raring to talk about this on the air, and we finally are getting a chance to do so. And that movie and its sequel is an American werewolf in London and American werewolf in Paris. And basically we kind of decided that these movies are super gay. And so now's our time, Adam, we get to finally talk about this.
1: I'm so excited. This was something, yeah, this was, cause here's the thing, um, you know, you, like vampires, everybody right away gay, like, people are like, people are pretty like on board with that. Um, and then American Werewolf in London is seen as a very um, heterosexual movie, um, and they're not like I don't blame them for thinking that, um, but I think it's usually to the point where I would say it's maybe like disregarded um, because uh, you know the you know the characters are these sort of dude bros and. Um, You know, it's a Jonathan Landis movie and he's kind of got that dude energy to the animal house. Um, uh, And then obviously is, you know, um, son is who he is. Um, (laughs) So it's usually like, um, you know, these movies do come off like very like they're kind of like just kind of disregarded as straight. But um, I think the werewolf in general is a very, uh, I mean, it's a it's a huge queer monster. Um, I mean, and then you just open up the box of like all monsters are queer allegories. Like you really can't find one that maybe is not.
0: Well, it comes back to otherness, doesn't it? Like I think otherness. There's always a, a queerness to otherness because we understand otherness inherently. And even if even if that uh, other doesn't necessarily represent the tenets of, of of queer identity, whatever that is, because depending on on identity, it changes from from individual to individual. Um, I think there are things that we can see. I mean, like the idea of of werewolves, I often think about um, sort of the wolf is the truest portion of the person who is a werewolf and, and, and the, and the person is sort of, you know, their cultural and societal uh, um, pressures, like, you know, their, their conditioning. So they're always trying to suppress it. That's what we see. It's like the idea that like, he, they're trying to keep their truest self contained but as we know, you can't, you can't deny your, your truth. Yeah. It's a thing where it's like, it's like, yeah, you, this
1: thing that you don't want to be. So you're like, Oh great. Like nine times out of the, like, you know, like, you know, this many days out of the year, i I'm, the, I'm like this thing and then you know just like once in a while I'm this other thing and I just like super just wish that 1% would go away um, and then I, you know I had a conversation with a, with someone else with a friend um, about not werewolves but really about about like um, gayness and like well what would you who would you be if you were straight and I'm just like I couldn't disentangle it like not even for like the the shit of it like I just couldn't disentangle those elements and I think I might push back a little bit on what you said where it's like I don't know if it's like, I don't know if I would say the truest part of the self, but I would say it's all true. And right. It's like the the, the the man part and the wolf part, like there's, it's all true and you have to reckon with both, otherwise you're an incomplete. So if you're just wolf all the time, that's incomplete. If you're just man all the time, that's incomplete.
0: I love that read. I think that's great. I honestly think that's a really, really uh, insightful look at that. Oh,
1: well. Um, So, uh, and I mean, this goes to my, this goes to my, you know, I'm a big Lynch fan when Lynch always rides that horror line. Um, And that's something where um, Twin Peaks is very much about, especially the new season, which was about um, you have to reckon with your shadow self or else you will be completely destroyed. Um, And so there was this thing that even like the good version of this character kept denying the bad part of this. Everything was moot. So I think that, you know, that's a very um, Jekyll and Hyde werewolf sort of read on, on living is that, like, you do have to, you know, it's, um, I don't know what you know, religion that really speaks to the most, but um, you do have to reckon with both. Like, your, your negative impulses, your, and not even negative impulse, just like the stuff that um, you don't like as much, or maybe society doesn't like as much, or... Um, that creates maybe difficulties in, in your life. They're just, I mean, you're a complete person made of all these different things and every single part of it is true and, and must be, um, ooh, my favorite word again, acknowledged. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, so I think, and, and, and American Werewolf in London really that more than because there's so many bad werewolf movies my god um and it's just like if you're a fan of the character of, of the monster like you're just shit out of luck unless you're i don't know the, the two or three you can maybe go to
0: well and i think there's a lot of male objectification in american werewolf in london too if you want to look at the surface homoeroticism of it all we get to spend a lot of time with na- naked david noughton uh let alone all of these like deep reasons
1: okay so we're gonna we're gonna circle back to a, a part of the conversation we had earlier which is like what was your earliest horror thing so um i don't know if you recall this but um they used to play american werewolf in london on comedy central back in the 90s this was like before comedy central had like daily Show or whatever or south park even like this was just like mid 90s when it was just reruns of shit um and this was i was maybe 11 maybe 12 but this was this was a route for me um because this was like this was the only naked guy i'd ever seen so it was like um, and it's weird because like the male object- objectification in this, because the movie presents so heterosexually um, in the text that um, there's not, there was not a lot of editing. You don't really edit around like naked David Newton, like you would if there was like um, like maybe if there was like a naked woman in the movie. I mean, there is like in the porn theater in the end. So like there's more like on the surface what maybe the censors would have edited out, but they really didn't edit out much um, uh, of the of the dude in this. So this was like this was. Pr- the inner like active internet like porn on the internet or like magazines so this was for many years this was like maybe the only naked guy i could sing so there <laughs>
0: <laughs> well there you go the awakening thanks to comedy central's lack of editing
1: they, knew what they were doing yeah so i mean like like you said there's tons of like male objectification there um and in general like the transformation scene the famous transformation scene you know i had a i a tweet kind of blow up a little bit ago, maybe a year or so ago, where I was kind of noting that, like, um, in this movie, when he's transforming, like, the, 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 the shots of, of him are so tight, like, on him. Uh, and he's, the way he's, like, writhing and kind of going through it, like, it really looks like someone bottoming for the first time. Um <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to take your listeners there, but, like, it was um, it was one of those things where, like, you know, like, I rewatched it, like, maybe a few years ago, and I was just like, God, he really, like, I mean, if you kind of, like, if you take out the, the wide shots or whatever where you see it, but if it's just, like, him kind of writhing or whatever close up, it's like, you, you could, this could be straight out of Pornhub.
0: Oh, yeah, bracing himself on the floor, all of that. Uh, and I think that what re- initially led you and I to have the conversation is I had done a revisit of American Werewolf in Paris, which I hadn't really seen since it came out. And uh, I, I know that among horror fans, it is, it is kind of a very reviled sequel. Uh, but, you know, as with a lot of things that are initially hated uh, or sort of maligned, um, time, I think, has been a little more kind to it. I, I mean, obviously, the CGI werewolves or whatever, but. There, there are things about it that, like, really struck me as uber queer in ways that, uh, again, I don't know if maybe the filmmakers were aware of, but the whole, the whole movie, even more so than the first one, is all about this sort of interconnectedness between the three boys and how they're kind of, like, very, very emotionally dependent on each other. And then it's just this like idea that they're in Paris and Julie Delpy's there kind of for some reason, I guess. But then they're go- they're going to like sex clubs that they were invited to by like Parisian men in leather pants. And it's like, what? What? What is this?
1: Literally the um it's like the personification of the European or gay. Uh a meme that was i guess i like it's an early meme but like you know it was it's, it's that sort of thing where there is like there is definitely like ai don't know maybe that's um maybe that's kind of how queers read things that's how we read male intimacy i don't know i really don't know how straights read male intimacy but um i think when there is like sort of friends um who you know and there there is like a lot of like um you know friendship and them coming each other and then mourning each other. There is, like, there's a tenderness there. And and then that does, you know, end up reading kind of like, I mean, whether it's um, intended or not, most likely probably not. Uh, But uh, it's maybe not as predominant as it is in, like, Freddy's Revenge uh, would be. But um, it's, it's, I mean, it's definitely there. And then you've got these sort of, like, alluring French men giving you these, like, blue steel looks and, um, like taking them in and they're wearing these like druid robes later and there's all sorts of ritualistic and they've tied up the muscle guy to a crucifix with like, it's again, it's like, it's, uh, it's, it's not, not there.
0: Well, true. And you know, and, and for the, for the people in the audience whose dander got up by my comment about Julie Delpy being there for some reason, she's obviously like, I love Julie Delpy, but her, her character in this movie, she is supposed to be the, um, romantic lead uh, and and love interest of uh, Tom Everett Scott, and e- even though they're supposed to have sort of a sexual relationship in it, in any of the scenes where the the sexuality is on display, the lens of that camera is always sort of on him. And so and and I think that the argument would be made that it's because of the physicality and how being a werewolf is changing his body, and we're supposed to kind of focus on the more primal but when you're watching a movie and it's like here's here's this cute guy and he his torso's just like writhing around and he, and and he's not the only one that's frequently undressed all three of those guys are sometimes together and so it's kind of like while i was rewatching it last fall i thought to myself oh my god is this sort of like bellamy's american werewolf
1: i mean the whole ending on the so there, so at the at the if people haven't seen it there's there's a, a the ending scene or the final fight uh it's between like the villain werewolf this um uh, french guy um again another <laughs> bellamy expat um uh and it's just like tom everett scott like wearing these like kind of cutie flannels writhing around with this like naked scratched up guy like on this train and it's very, <laughs> and they're just like wrestling and it's all very just, you know. It's all very is what it is. I mean, honest. So yeah, there. It, I mean, that is there.
0: It's totally there. And I just want to. I want more American Werewolf in other European city movies now. Like I want. I want American Werewolf in Berlin. That's a straight on, like, you know, gay Bruce Le Bruce. Actually, no, Bellamy. Who, whoever's out there, Bellamy Productions. I know you're listening. I'm sure they are. Uh, Give me American Werewolf in Prague and just make it happen. I, somebody please.
1: Yeah. <laughs> American Werewolf in like Sao Paulo.
0: Exactly. You heard you heard it here first. Michael Verotti, Adam Sass making the, the formal request. So
1: so Listen, we could like we could churn it out. Um, you know, if if people you know, people people's standards for werewolf movies are the bar is low. So you could really make a factory of these.
0: It's true. And like talk talk about free trips to Europe. I mean, if we're if we're ever allowed to leave our house again, so
1: oh my! <laughs> I know you you're mentioning all these like fabulous cities, and I'm just like, I would love to even <laughs> go there.
0: I mean, look look at this point in quarantine. I would just love to call, go to Culver City right now, like just. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um. Yeah. Yeah. Please. Please take me to uh, Sherman Oaks. <laughs> uh to go to a mall
0: right now. Well, here we are, we've talked about uh, writing and horror and the young adult uh, world and the queerness of werewolves. Um, You you have peppered throughout um, the the name of of the holy saint of of Sunnydale, Buffy Summers. Um, So, you know, because you talk about Buffy so much when you visit uh, Slayer Fest, I don't want to harp on it too much, but since we're in the midst of a quarantine, and it's a, it's kind of a new world right now. Um, and Buffy and, and the Scoobies were always great at adapting to a new world. I just kind of want your take. What would Buffy and the gang be doing in this quarantine situation?
1: Roll with it.
0: <laughs> like they, I mean, in this quarantine, I feel like
1: that was sort of similar to, um, it would maybe be like season five, Spiral, um, when they're on the run from Glory and they're on that like caravan. Um, either that, or maybe when they were in season 4 when they they on the run from the initiative and she's in her yummy sushi pajamas. In fact, I think Sarah Michelle Geller shared an Instagram post of, uh, like it was, it was someone doing like a side-by-side. They were like, oh, this is what I thought my apocalypse outfit would be. And it was like Buffy with her leather in the, in the steak. And then it was like, and here's actually what my apocalypse outfit is. And it was her and her yummy sushi pajamas, just like putting around. so I think Buffy for the first I mean like listen um this is a big bad that like I'm not gonna say no one knows how to fight because here's the thing (laughs) I mean we're getting into like the politics of it but like you know other countries are fighting it a lot better than we are um so it's like one of those things where like we know how to fight it it's like is the person who's in charge of doing that gonna do that um so I think she'd be very frustrated it would be very um uh, it would be very much like her versus the mayor, where it was just, or like you know, Principal Snyder, where she's just constantly up against these authority figures who are being just like assholes for no reason. Um, so I think she would constantly be trying to find ways to, um, uh, it would be a lot of consulting the books, it would be a lot of uh, fighting spells to maybe bind this or somehow assert your will outside of the walls of uh, wherever they were confined to.
0: Well, Buffy, we're, we're counting on you.
1: Uh, yeah, definitely.
0: Now, this usually comes to be the point of the show, right before we wrap up, where I like to ask guests uh, what they've been watching recently, what they recommend, whether it's horror or not. But since you uh, are are very much uh, involved in the world of books, what should people be reading? Especially because they have the time to read right now. What What's really lighting up uh, your your reading list? Well,
1: um, I would say people should, even though my book does not come out until September, you can go to NetGalley if you're not familiar with that. Um, it's an account where you can request an early advance copy, like basically an ebook, um, in advance. So I would definitely recommend checking out mine, "Surrender Your Sons," if you if that floats your boat. Um, but also on top of that, I would say um, what I'm reading right now. Um, there's a few books that are coming out. I would say uh, Camp by Elsie uh, Rosen is coming out in May. Uh, I like to call that um, a uh, satyr play to to mine, which is it's uh, so Camp is about a whole bunch of different queer kids at a camp. Uh, and it's YA, but it's, it's like the positive, upbeat version. And they're supportive there. Uh, so that one is a very, very fun read. And that's a lot about uh, queer identity. It's about this... Um, you know, queers-only summer camp that a lot of kids get sent to. Um, And then this one guy who's like a theater guy who had like long hair and was, you know, very femme. And it's a lot about masked femme stuff. So um, it was like this very femme guy who um, was sort of in love with this soccer gay who he saw summer after summer. And then he arrives at camp this year determined to... You know, date this guy. So, what he does is it's a little Shakespearean uh, Twelfth Night where he's, um, he pretends to be a new kid. He basically, uh, you know, cuts off all his hair, gets this very masked haircut, um, basically pretends to be this new guy, not this guy who, you know, everybody kind of knew was like the Femi theater kid. Um, and it's, it's really about how, um, especially at that age, we try to change our personalities and who we are and we edit ourselves in order to be the thing that we think this other guy really wants us to be um and so it's it's a rom-com basically where these two guys fall in love and it's a bit about like okay should he tell him who he really is and then it's like well should this um more masked guy get his sort of uh bell rung a little bit and should he reconsider what he considers to be uh sexy and interesting. So uh Camp by Elsie Rose and it's a just a wonderful book. Like it's it's super it's very, very light, but I mean as you can see it goes into very important uh themes and topics. So it's very, very awesome for the brain. Um also I would say Reverie by Ryan LaSala, uh which is if you're into fantasy, that's a queer fantasy that is um, uh, he's pitching it as The Magician Meets Inception. So it's a yeah. lot about uh, uh, like d- dreams and it's, you know, playing with dream realities. And it's about, uh, it's really ultimately about who gets the creative IP rights to reality. There is a battle going on for who gets to basically control the reality of the dream everybody lives in. Um, it's quite wild. It has a lot to say. Um, about reality. But Ryan LaSalle, if you don't follow him on Twitter, he is a delight. He's a very, um, he's a very Peter Pan-esque man. Uh, He is very, he's very delightful. uh, And he brings this sort of pluck to uh, his writing. So that's, it's been absolutely exquisite to read.
0: Well, Adam, thank you for these recommendations. And thank you so much for this great conversation. You brought a lot of insight and uh, a lot of, of really great points and uh, I'm just so glad that you were able to take some time and uh, finally come and, and hang out.
1: So glad we finally got to talk about—I um, mean, just to talk in general on the podcast—and then talk about the American Werewolf movies because
0: yeah.
1: yeah, I think they're <laughs> great. I mean, and that's the other thing is that they—they're all about mixing horror and comedy, which is a big thing for Buffy. It's a big thing for me and Stranger Sons. It's a—it's horror, but they're and they're in danger, but they're cracking jokes. Um, so I would encourage every, I would encourage all queer listeners to give American Werewolf in London its queer due.
0: Yay! Where can people find you?
1: People can find me on Twitter at the Adam Sass or on Instagram at it's Adam Sass. Uh, and you can also you can pre-order my book anywhere books are sold. You can go to well, I mean, in the lockdown right now, they are uh, Amazon is being a little wonky with when they are accepting. I think delivery books but that's for books that exist right now so you can pre-order me there you can pre-order me on Indiebound, which is a good way to support independent bookstores during this time because a lot of them are in trouble uh and barnes and noble i would throw them in that mix too so i would say if you can order from barnes and noble right now um it would really help them out because uh they are a bigger store but they do need our help right now um i think they're uh as vulnerable as indies are right now so you can find me there, you can uh, add my book on Goodreads, uh, if you don't want to pre-order it right away, you can add me there and it'll give you a little ping when it's time to buy the book uh, in your email box
0: Well Adam, thank you again so much listeners, uh, please keep your eyes out for Surrender Your Sons, you can pre-order it or get it in September uh, Adam, thanks so much, truly
1: Thank you Michael, it's been a pleasure
0: I'm Michael Varady this is Dead for Filth, yours always in Glam and Gore Good night, good luck And stay home. Dead for Filth, the Renegade edition, is a June Gloom production in association with Sister Hyde. Dead for Filth is created and hosted by Michael Verratti and produced by Drew Phillips.